just over a year, I think, Amr, just about a year. Um, Dr. Alnamir joined our section of pediatric gastroenterology from um, University Hospital's Case Medical Center, Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. Uh, he actually uh, received most of his undergraduate and medical education at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. Uh, and then subsequently the vast majority of his pediatric training at Case Western Reserve University in internal medicine and pediatrics, including a chief resident year and fellowship at Rainbow and some time also uh, on faculty in general pediatrics actually prior to um, his fellowship. So um, died in the wool primary care pediatrics as well and I think that will infuse his talk. He has been very active already since he's been here. Um, and, and has been up to some good. A lot on the global health side, although today he's going to be um, educating us on the gastroenterology side, but on the global health side, he was elected to NASPGAN, which is the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, I believe, uh, the Society for Pediatric Gastroenterologists, the Public Affairs and Advocacy Committee for a three-year term, and has already gotten us doing advocacy work <clears throat> with 10 other national organizations uh, uh, as a signatory around medith medically necessary foods under the National Defense Authorization Act. He um, has helped us um, launch with Paul Palumbo a, an exciting exchange program in global health at our residency level. So four exchange learners are already with us or are coming from one from Jordan, two from Rwanda, and one from Tanzania. Uh, locally, he um, is working with uh, the folks at the Lyme School and the middle school from the Lyme Foundation grant to connect children in our local community with children in underserved Jordanian and Syrian uh, refugee communities. And it has had a kickoff speaker actually just yesterday with Dr. Nawaz Hadbash as speaker. Um, got to have lunch, it looks like, uh, recently also with Kareen Rania at, at the Global Clinton Global Initiative in New York Summit, and it has an iPad application coming out on the gastrointestinal side that we will hope to see maybe in clinics. So um, without further ado, most of you hopefully have already met Amr this year, and we're, we're pleased to hear about some planned advice. Thanks, Amr. Okay, so good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, hopefully the, uh, the lecture is uh, not as bland as the advice. Um, conflicts of interest are none, which means I have to ask Keith for a raise. Um, and um, I want to speak for just a couple minutes about, about the impotence, uh, impetus for, for this thing. You know, during my training and over the last 20 years, um, I've seen a few pendulums, or pendula, we're still unclear what the, uh, um, the plural is, um, in, in medicine. And we have had um, so many changes. And when you're, uh, when you're a resident and a medical student, you're always learning the latest and the greatest advice. And um, my father over here, who you can see, um, he unfortunately passed away a couple months ago. But he was a general um, physician. And he, was a, uh, he had a, ran a very busy practice. And I estimate that he probably saw in his career anywhere from 100 to 150,000 patients in his lifetime. And I was always surprised that with all the latest and greatest information out there, I'd go to him and say, hey, what do you think of this and what do you think of that? And he wouldn't really poo-poo it, but he would always be like, well, let's just wait a couple years. Let's see. Um, he, was, he, he was one of those people, and there are so many like him, um, 
that learned that when you're, you're, you're working with volume and you're seeing a lot of patients, um, while there's a good, strong basis for evidence-based advice, when you're doing it, you actually learn what works and what doesn't work really quickly. And so I think he was a very moderating influence on me and not, not jumping to the greatest and, and, uh, to the latest and the greatest and just taking time to see how things develop. So some thoughts and themes that come up while I'm uh, thinking about this topic are basically that, you know, I'm looking at the gastrointestinal health and what we're advising our children, we're advising our parents as they're coming into our office. And maybe some one thought that comes up is, and it's a discussion that we have in the clinic, is by the process of elimination, perhaps we're zeroing in on the uh, bad components of food. We're just continuously trying to find what's, what's the nutrient, what's that one thing that we gotta eliminate so we can all be healthy. Um, and then gastrointestinal health, you know, is it's dynamic and we need to be doing, all my patients are saying, I just feel I need to be doing something. Something's wrong with this kid. I need to do something. So we always have to be doing. And then um, there's, there's always that underlying belief and this, this nice trust into our regulatory agencies and the FDA that does not approve a medication or a treatment unless it's really been rigorously tested, evaluated. And so, so we have that safety net that what, what we're prescribing has really been thoroughly, thoroughly evaluated. And then finally, the public. When you see a lot of patients and you, you try to have this high volume um, clinic and high volume practice, that really our patients have an innate ability to choose wisely. Yes, they need advice. Yes, they need some coaching guidance. But when they're making their own health decisions, they, they, they will be choosing wisely. And so I decided to move to a couple themes of this topic. Maybe we just, to, 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 to help our patients reach that gastrointestinal health and help the parents with the advice, we focus on two things. Maybe diet that keeps us healthy and treatments that keep our GI system happy. And if we can focus on those and try to tease out what we should do and shouldn't do, maybe that's what um, will, will help us in our practice. So, so the two thoughts are, what do we need to take to be healthy? And what should we eliminate that makes us unwell? So bland advice number one. And this slide is, um, is a little bit abbreviated because we've spoken about the peanut studies. Robert Boyle et al. and um, some earlier studies have really showed that we need to start feeding our infants um, early. We've gone through this process with, with expert advice and expert um, personal guidelines and things that were handed, handed down to me 20 years ago that used to say, well, you know, feed your child when they're ready to feed. Well, that's good. And then um, maybe start with wheat or cereals because those are less allergenic. And we said, okay, well, that's what we'll advise our parents. And then they said, maybe after that, the vegetables, because you don't want to do the fruits before the vegetables, you know. You're, uh, the, the little baby's taste buds are not very complex. If they taste the, the sweet stuff, they don't want the veggies, and that will lead to problems that, later in life. And, you know, I, we've held on to that advice for a while. And then as you practice and as you talk to the patients, and I spent five years in an underserved clinic that was pretty high volume. We were seeing about 5,000, 6,000 patients a year. It all of a sudden became that if we're going to introduce one food at a time slowly over a week, that's going to take a long time. And, and, and people are not going to be feeding their kids until about nine, ten months of age. And, and when do you want them to start eating food? And, and we had this, this um, maybe a mistaken sense or, or this fear that perhaps children's immune systems are, are not strong, which we know, you know they're relatively immune suppressed, but maybe they, they can't handle this food. And so we have to, we have to go slowly. And, it's not new advice. I mean, 
earlier pediatricians have been trying to advise what to eat, when not to eat, and, and how to eat it for a long time. But what we learned was that when we were going to eliminate the peanuts for one year, then we said eliminate them for 18 months. Then we said, you know what, don't introduce peanuts for three years. And we developed these, these increasingly large peanut allergies and other food allergies. And, and all of a sudden, over the last 20 years, we've had this rise in allergies. So then we kind of had some studies that finally backed up what we thought. Introduce foods, what, you know, grandma was right. That's the blind advice. Grandma was right. Feed them when they're ready to feed and, and trust them. Go slowly. Use the age-appropriate foods, the right texture, but go slow with that. Uh, but but, uh, but try to ramp it up. And then for the people that are really um, focusing on breastfeeding exclusively for the um, first six months of life, well, this doesn't go against that. I say start to feed um, between four to six months of age. So you have this conversation with your families, and if they're ready to feed and they really want to feed, then let them start tasting foods at four or five months. If they want to exclusively breastfeed or you're in the camp that wants to exclusively breastfeed for six months, that's fine. But I would say start at six months and ramp it up relatively quickly. Don't ramp it up slowly. Uh, trust your, your infant's immune system. Trust that they will tolerate, and let's see what happens. And then avoid the empiric eliminations. Now we're getting a lot of advice from pediatricians, um, sometimes in the minority. But when they come to my clinic, this, these, these infants are dairy eliminated, really for no strong solid evidence. They're wheat eliminated. They're gluten eliminated. Because what we think applies to us maybe will trickle down and should apply to our babies. But what are the long-term effects? We don't know the long-term effects. So we have to move on. In The USDA have tried to help us achieve that um, kind of like gastrointestinal health. They've, um, they, since it's been mandated oh, since about 40 years that the USDA and the Department of Health and Human Services will give general guidelines for us to achieve um, health in the general sense of the world, uh, word, and um, gastrointestinal health is really high among that. Um, uh, trying to decrease obesity, decrease um, improving heart health, all starts with obviously exercise, maintaining an ideal weight, but also in what we eat and, and what we consume. And the advice in the past was, was fairly standard. If we look, um, these, these guidelines come out every five years, and they were pretty standard in the first um, two decades. You know, eat a variety of foods, maintain an ideal weight, there was the whole thing about too much fat is a bad thing. Obviously, saturated fat is bad. Cholesterol is bad. Increased grains, increased fibers. Um, sugars are obviously an issue. And if you drink, drink in moderation. As we've moved along in 2000, they took a step back. And they said, well, let, let's reassess. And they, they started to um, reformulate that slightly with, with just subtle changes. So the pendulum is swinging from general, good, healthy advice so let's go back and let's reassess this and let's assess the, uh, the, the data behind it. And they divided the guidelines into 10 guidelines that were clustered into three groups, aiming for fitness, building a, a healthy base, and choosing kind of sensibly, choosing wisely. And then in 2005 was the time when um, the guidelines started discussing low-fat milk because we're really, really dealing with an obesity epidemic. And we started thinking, well, when we're giving our children milk, Maybe it has to be low fat. Maybe skim milk is better. High fat is bad. It became you know, the, the, the code word over the last 15 years that you know, low fat, fat-free milk for children over two. And the guidelines were changing. And people said, well, you know what? If your child is getting good weight, maybe you should go down to age one, where you switch them to skim milk and low fat milk. And hoping that you know, this is one of the things that, that can lead our, you know, that can decrease the rise in obesity and that can improve our children's health. And also, there were guidelines stuck in there about 
eliminating fish, shellfish, more for the mercury poisoning. But when you make some of these guidelines and you suggest it out there, the public runs with it. So there's been a fear of fish. There's been a fear of seafood um, for children, younger, for young children and, and infants. And we don't know if this is one of the causes that might be triggering an increase in, in food allergies. We don't know, but, but these guidelines have been handed down and the public gets a little bit confused about what to do with it. So the tide was changing a little bit when um, 2010, the guidelines came and they started focusing maybe on the nutrient density of food and, and saying, well, okay, do we really need to add sugars? Do we need, need to have all that extra fat? Yet still there's the uh, focus on fat-free milk was still in the 2010 guidelines, even though people were starting to say, wait a minute, let, let's reassess all the information and, and do we really um, need to stay fat-free? When the latest guidelines came out, now the 2015 to, 20, uh, to 2020 guidelines, so this is the eighth edition of the guidelines, it, it kind of scaled back a little bit. And we've had some changes. So the pendulum swung a little bit to, to definitely being healthy, staying active, moderating our alcohol. But also we realized that if you look at the very bottom rung, that eggs are actually okay. Cholesterol is no longer a nutrient of concern. So everything that we've learned in the last, what, 30 years about how cholesterol is bad, cholesterol is bad, you, you want to avoid heart attacks, we got to keep our children healthy. And all of a sudden, after data was reviewed, rigorous evidence was evaluated, eggs are okay, which we, we used to limit. And, and guess what? Coffee's good in moderation. Coffee's actually healthy. Not, not saying as coffee's not bad. Coffee might actually help. So... So the guidelines are changing. Things are moving, and they move for 20, 30 years, and then we arrest the data. But how has this affected us over the last 40 years? So we know where we're at now, but let's see the trend in, in our food consumption. And if we look from 1970 onwards, based on this, we've had a significant decrease in egg consumption, um, 20% between uh, 1970 until 2010. We've had a decrease in coffee consumption, which for our children doesn't really impact us. Um, red meat is down, which is a good thing. Added sugars have unfortunately gone up despite all these recommendations. Added sugars are up 15 to 20%, and then they scaled back a little bit. And we're gonna talk about sugars and, and what the actual historical context to them are. Grains are up, that's supposed to be good. The focus is on whole grains, uh, decreasing the refined grains. Fresh fruit are up a little bit, which is good. And if you see poultry, since we scaled back our red meat, poultry has really gone up. And if we look at our meat consumption, America's right there at the top, right below Luxembourg. And we've realized that America really likes their pork, we like our, uh, we like our beef, and we like our poultry. And if you compare it to the rest of the world, um, between the highest and the lowest, we are consuming, uh, consuming more meat um, by almost tenfold, five to tenfold times than other countries. Yet other countries are still doing well in general. They're healthy, they're doing good. Our, our outcomes are, um, are not far better than their health outcomes. In fact, some, some countries in Europe and some countries um, in Africa and Asia do better with a lot less protein intake. So um, when we move on to look at other foods, we have to think, okay, so we're eating meat, what about other um, foods in our diet? Maybe we're having too much protein or maybe it's the wrong kind of protein. Well, what about grains? Well, based on the USDA recommendations, 
Our grains have gone up 30% over the last 50 years. And really, if we take in the last 10 years, our intake of grains is up about 45%. Um, and so that number is now up to, for total grain products, 200 pounds per capita per, per, per year. So that's around um, three quarters of a pound per day of grains. And we don't know. So the pendulum is swinging to more grains, to more intake. We're up 40%. Yet what's the effect? And we'll see. Sweeteners. Well, this one, I think, has, has been pretty steady. We know we're taking too many sweeteners. We know we're taking the wrong calories. We know we're taking the wrong sugars. Total caloric sweeteners have really increased remarkably, 40% in the last um, 50 years. And if you look at it, the average lifetime, in, in somebody's average lifetime, we take in about eight to 10,000 pounds of sugar in our lifetime. So Dr. Stephen Gunnett gave a TEDx um, talk at Harvard. He's done a lot of research with, with colleagues. And basically, if you look at our historical sugar consumption over the last 200 years, we're really up there. You know, it's, for me, it's remarkable not that we have diabetes, it's remarkable that we don't all have diabetes <laughs> because it's, it's an increasing epidemic. We are up so much from what our bodies historically and genetically probably can tolerate, which, which means really we're up there. And it's a testament to our human body. So with all these insults, all the refined sugars, that, all the refined grains that we're throwing at our body, with all the, uh, the meat that we're throwing at our body, with all these sugars that we're really um, ingesting, um, yet our body still handles it for the most part. For the most part, we're, we're still a healthy population. Our, our, um, our average lifespan is increasing. Heart health is improving, mostly probably due to technology, early detection, and risk stratification. But you look at it, bland advice number two or three, is that our bodies can handle it. So we don't have to be so obsessive and compulsive. Our bodies can take it. We have to look at what we're doing, but at the same time, we have to be aware that, that sugars and refined grains are really, really affecting us. So my bland advice would be eat less across the board, probably. Eat less, eat less, eat less, but eat healthy. I don't want to say eat less fruits or vegetables. That's the wrong thing. But we're overeating, um, as we've seen from the previous slides, and we're way overeating. Um, we do need to exercise, and we need to be fit. But probably we need to eat less still, even if we're exercising to make up for it, we need to still eat less. And sugars are really killing us. And now we can say, enjoy your eggs and coffee. So don't be so afraid of them anymore. <laughs> now, what about milk? We talked about milk. We talked about the 2005 guidelines about milk consumption, about heart health, about children's health. And if you look historically from 1970 onwards, Total fluid milk intake is less, even though the portions are the same. It's just the amount of portions that we're giving. Um, it's the amount of servings that we're giving are probably less. And since 1990 to about 2000, 2005, lower fat milk and skim milk has become the predominant milk that we're drinking. And, and whole milk has really gone down. It's getting a bad rep. And is there good data for that? Well, let's see. Um, if we compare a 20-year span between 1977 to 2007, well, what we see is a trend that has gone from whole milk being the predominant source of uh, um, uh, the dairy and, and skim milk being a smaller source, a or a lesser fat milk being a smaller source of the dairy intake that we take, um, to, to, to a role reversal and a flip. And that flip applies both to the pre-adolescent children 
and both to adolescents and adults. So it's really across the board that our milk intake has decreased. So we increased our intake of lesser fat milk and we decreased the whole milk intake. So are we achieving our goal of health? Is this working for us? Do we think this will make us a little bit skinnier? Do we think this will make us healthier? So one study that came out recently in the last 10 years was uh, published in 2013 and was by Sarah Holmerg et al. and looked at high dairy fat intake and relating it with central obesity. And we realized over a 12-year follow-up cohort that if you look at the uh, odds ratios right over here, the odds ratio of consuming low-fat milk and not taking in any whipping cream was actually in, uh, correlated with higher risk of central obesity. And if you look at the other side of it, high fat intake or whole milk or higher fat content with whipped cream daily several times a week <laughs> was actually inversely correlated with, with, with um, central obesity. So that was one of the things that wasn't the only study but made a lot of people pause and say, wait a minute, following people up prospectively, what are we doing? Were we giving the right advice and, and should the pendulum now swing the other way? And then we, um, Kratz and Bars and, and Stephen Guyanet, the one who had presented all the sugar data, uh, presented some information in the European Journal of Nutrition where they, reviewed, where they reviewed 16 studies that really looked at the literature and they based it on observational studies and it came back with the same conclusion. Um, it does not support the hypothesis that dairy fat or high fat dairy foods contribute to obesity or the cardiometabolic risk. And in fact, the suggestion is that High-fat dairy consumption with typical dietary patterns was inversely associated with obesity risk. So now we're starting to rethink our USDA guidelines and we're starting to rethink maybe we should incorporate these things. Well, does it apply to children? We've seen this in males and in adults. Well, what about in children? Does this apply to us? So Sharf et al. in the Archives of Disease in Childhood decided to look at um, surveys of um, two-year-olds and four-year-olds. And they surveyed approximately 10,700 children in the United States. And they divided them up into um, the race and ethnicity subgroups, into the socioeconomic status subgroups, and um, they, both for two-year-olds and for four-year-olds. And if you look at this, it's a little bit of a busy slide, but across the board, the darker um, bar is either whole milk or 2% milk, and the, the, the lighter bar is the one with skim milk or lesser fat milk. And across the board, the BMI scores were lower in the whole milk or the higher fat milk groups for, for the two-year-olds, the four-year-olds, and regardless of ethnicity, regardless of socioeconomic status. So now there's talk in the next guidelines that are coming up, the ninth set of guidelines, 20, uh, the 2020 guidelines, should we now get away from this? And was our advice to, to limit high-fat milk wrong advice? Was, should the pendulum now swing the other way? And if you think about it, you know, that's probably leading into um, my, my next piece of advice is drink milk, drink it whole, but don't overdo it. And basically, you know, we don't need to change things. We don't need to eliminate some components trying to make it healthier. It's, take, take the whole package. Drink how much you want of it. Advise your you know, children to drink how much of it. But really, I find a lot of people don't remember how much fat is in whole milk. And, um, 
I, I asked parents, I asked the students, the residents, well, what percentage of fat is in whole milk? I'm sure this group would know, but it's, it's really 3.8%. So, so if I had labeled it 3.8% milk or 96% fat-free milk, that, that would sound better. You know, when you say it's whole milk or high-fat milk, people are scared. But if you say, oh yeah, you got your option of 3.8% milk, 2% milk, 1% milk, it doesn't sound so bad. So, so, so we should not have probably based our idea on this one component in the milk that we try to eliminate to make us healthier. And so what's the, what's the rationale? What are people saying about why whole milk leads to lesser obesity, why whole milk leads to probably um, uh, um, decreased BMI? Well, some thinking is that probably the fat in milk might give you more satiety for longer. Uh, it might slow down your bowels a little bit. We know milk slows down bowel. That's a different topic, constipation. But, um, but maybe you're, you're full longer, and so you take less sugars, and, and you take less calories overall. So, so our, our thought process um, has to change a little bit. But what does the public want? So I looked at some trends um, in diet. The public is really clamoring. We're still not feeling good. We're still not feeling very healthy. And, and the public still wants to do, remember our, our hypothesis, the public says we need to do something. Our children don't feel very good. They have upset stomachs. Um, um, something's going on. Maybe it's reflux. Maybe it's a food allergy. What, what is going on? And so um, in, in JAMA, we started looking at population trends. And this study um, in JAMA basically revealed that um, between 2009 and 2014, while celiac disease has remained stable, the trend towards gluten-free diets and, and, and the population trend is really increasing. And we see that in our clinic. A lot of people are either being advised by their pediatricians to try gluten-free for a couple of weeks, try gluten-free for a month, see how it works. It's becoming like an empiric trial. Um, uh, we're seeing parents and children going gluten-free for even their young infants to their teens, their adolescents, just trying something. They want to find something that helps. Um, and so, so the trend towards elimination of, of certain types of um, components of food has increased, fueled by, by a, a desire for, for more health, but also fueled by, by marketing possibly and fueled by, um, by just, um, just, just hype. And then we get into things that start giving all these diets names and trying to make them specialized. And, and even US News and World Report, which we had very objective rankings about colleges, hospitals, everything, now want to start ranking diets. And it's strange. Um, the best one for fertility is, uh, let me find it. Where is it here? Um, sorry? Yeah, the easiest to follow is the fertility diet. So great. Um, for weight loss, you, you want to try you know, Weight Watchers, if not Jenny Craig, or the Biggest Loser Diet. Um, if you have diabetes, go on this diet. Um, for heart health, um, plant-based diets, um, healthy eating. Really, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. We have to be very, very bland with our advice. And we have to remember that it's not one specific thing that you add or take out. It's, it's the overall package. And so William Davis and capitalized on this based on his own personal anecdotal experiences on that, well, maybe wheat is, is not a good thing. Maybe that's what we need to eliminate. It's not the fat. We were wrong about the fat. It's the wheat. And we saw the slides that saw, showed the, the grains increasing and the wheat increasing. And the per capita consumption of grains is about 150 pounds. So maybe it's, it's wheat, and we have wheat belly. And he's just saying, get rid of the wheat, and, and don't you know, eat wheat. And, and then, because 
that's what the, the, the public is wanting. They want to find that one component that is um, affecting us. So we got into the whole gluten sensitivity experiments. And I, pras- I promised Kathy Shubkin that I'd only put one slide about celiac. Um, but basically, it, what we realized with the public trend towards sensitivity and, 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 and how we feel with the relation to, to wheat, that perhaps this is the one thing we got to eliminate, people started studying it. And they looked at it. And they said, well, what if we do these um, placebo-controlled, self-reported um, surveys on intake? And what they did was they gave you either a placebo or gluten. And um, in other studies, they gave placebo or wheat. And you just reported how you felt. Did you feel bloated? Did you have abdominal pain? Were you feeling unwell? And then after a certain amount of period, there are a few studies done on this, four to eight weeks, you'd cross over. And you would not know if you're getting the gluten or if you're getting the placebo. And then you'd start reporting, do I feel better? Do I not feel better? And what they came up with is, okay, it might not be celiac, which is definitely an autoimmune process triggered by wheat, can make us very sick leading to anemia, inflammation, that really um, has to be treated and has to be um, attacked, to maybe there's this milder form of wheat intolerance where we just don't feel good. It's not going to lead to this autoimmune process, but it just, you know, wheat belly. It's, it's, it's gluten sensitivity. And so they came up with this, these were small styles, and they came up with this thing that said, yeah, maybe, maybe gluten sensitivity really does exist, and we've proven it. And, and now we have this thing called wheat intolerance syndrome, and the, that's what the public was demanding. We, we had this, and you just have to give a name to it. However, when they repeated the gluten sensitivity experiments on a larger scale, and they applied it, the pendulum swung back. And this was a quick swing of the pendulum, because now they're saying the same people who did the original studies came back and reviewed the data and said, well, we're not so sure. You know, <laughs> we reviewed it, we surveyed, we surveyed on a larger basis, and now we're not so sure if gluten sensitivity um, does exist. The problem is the cat is out of the bag. People are mentioning it. The public's mentioning it. They're not going to let go. So I decided to take a look at it for myself. And has anyone ever used the gluten trends, uh, Google Trends before? Good. <laughs> so this is um, non-scientific, but it is based on data. And it's based on metrics that Google provides. And what it does, it looks at internet searches for the term. So it doesn't tell you what the actual trend is. It just tells you who's looking at that trend. And um, the blue is the search for gluten. And celiac is in red. And if you notice, back in 2004, when Google were keeping track of their statistics, a larger percentage, even double, were searching for celiac disease or, or the word celiac. Less people really um, were searching for gluten. And then somewhere around 2009, 2010, just like that article in JAMA was reporting, all of a sudden the interest in the word gluten came up and celiac had remained stable over all this time, which we think you know, celiac disease has been stable. Um, the, the prevalence is the same. It has not changed. And so this, this fad is maybe, maybe developing. And now, like we said, the cat is out of the bag and, the bag, and people are really looking at gluten, and it's filtering down to a demand to the patients and to what we should do. Well, I also decided to look at the Google trend for dairy to see um, if it also applied, because I'm also getting a large percentage of my patients that are saying I should be dairy-free. That's it. That's the component of food. I don't know if it's gluten or not, but that's dairy. You got to take me off dairy. Dairy's bad. Cow's milk protein is horrible. This is it. We got to take it out. 
And it was not a big player in the market until about four or five years ago, where now dairy-free, the word dairy-free, so not just dairy, the word dairy-free has really skyrocketed, while the word lactose-free is the same almost, maybe a little bit higher. And I think that's because the same thing that we saw with um, celiac and gluten, the actual incidence of disease is the same, so the interest in, in searching for it is the same, but, but the, the hype has increased. So the hype with dairy-free is probably increasing, and the hype for gluten-free is probably increasing. Now, like I said, these are not confirmed statistics, and there's a, uh, there are some biases in here. One of the biases, more people are using the internet, so the search term will go up. Um, that's one bias that I thought of. Um, but overall, if you compare it to, and I, use, I ran some other samples of just what things might be searched for, and still I feel that in the last five years, the interest in trying to eliminate a certain component to reach that gastrointestinal health has really, really gone up. So the problem is that with all this hype about gastrointestinal health, all this hype about what do we eliminate, even we didn't talk about it, but the hype about superfoods, should we have the acai, should we just have avocado and everything, should we have all, all these superfoods that we're trying to find, which really have not panned out, our intake of whole fruits has gone down. If you look over the last, you know, between 1994 and 2007, 2008, based on these USDA statistics, non-Hispanic whites, Hispanics, and other have all had a five to 10% decrease in their intake of whole, fruit, whole fruits. So while we do care about what we're eating and we're searching for that, we're, we're neglecting to take our fruits. So, so we've gone, you know, we're kind of almost contradictory in how we're approaching our diet and our health. The only group that increased were the non-Hispanic blacks between 1994 and until 2007. They actually were able to increase their, their whole fruit intake by about eight to 9%. Unfortunately, the intake of juice is still rampant. Um, apple juice seems to have gone up a little bit. Orange juice might have gone down a little bit, but it's, it's still at most likely unacceptable levels. So with all this, you can say, look, people have a right to choose what they're gonna eat and how they're gonna eat it. Um, this is their right, um, and, and that's okay. People can have their own inter internal pendula. How, how they swing, uh, today I wanna try this for a while, this is my body, this is my child's body, that's fine. The concern is when the whole society goes toward this pendulum swing and the pediatricians are supporting it and perhaps we're finding data that may be questionable that might support a whatever free diet. The problem is the lowest income quintile are left out. Gluten-free foods are expensive, um, dairy-free options are a little bit more expensive and so when you actually look at um, the, the, the percent of before income tax spent on, on food, the lowest quintile are spending 40, 45% of their income. So actually contribu contributing to a, maybe a sense of anxiety that they can't achieve the things that the rest of the America is achieving. Maybe, maybe there's an increasing disparity in how they're, they're, they're feeding their children. And, and you know, we, we do realize in New Hampshire, food insecurity is actually increasing. Um, for households um, that have um, the, well, our data about household level food insecurity is approximately 10%. And very low food security is approximately one in 25 homes. So trying to have people say, go gluten free, go dairy free. That's why it, it's really hard to apply to your rural population and to your 
and, and to your um, less advantaged population. So be careful about when you give that advice. People might not be able to follow it. So our next piece of bland advice is to stop the preoccupation with a single food or a nutrient elimination. It's not appearing to correlate with health. It takes away the message of healthy eating, our whole, fruits intake, uh, our whole fruit intake is down, and it might exacerbate the sense of disparity and increase food-related anxiety when you can't apply this to your child. So what about medications? We talked about diet. We talked about trends in diet. We talked about trends in eliminating things in the diet. Well, what about what's causing us? Why do we do this? Maybe it's, let's talk about GI upset in the general sense of the term, everything, abdominal distress, a dyspepsia, discomfort, reflux. Well, proton pump inhibitors have come out, and they've been out now for a long time, um, since the early 70s, uh, um, since the, the, the late 80s. We've had the proton pump inhibitors. We've had the H2 blockers since the 70s. And the need for these was really to treat a big problem back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s and, and ongoing, which was gastric ulcers. People were getting gastric ulcers. They were having bleeding gastric ulcers, and it was a, a surgical condition, and it was leading to a large cause of mortality. So there is a need for, for PPIs. There's a need for acid suppression. We know that. Um, and if you look at it with medications, they've done their service, they've done their thing. The incidence of gastric ulcers and duodenal ulcers have really, really gone down, especially these surgeries for these um, ulcers. And <coughs> And also, there's been a marked increase in esophageal adenocarcinoma. We're noticing the trends from the 70s to 2000. And some people said, well, maybe we need medicines to suppress the acid production, and, and therefore um, we, can, we can try to achieve better gastrointestinal health. So PPI use has really increased, and it's increased dramatically. You can see the charts for all PPIs have just skyrocketed between the early 2000s up until 2010. <laughs> and a percentage of visits in which a PPI use was documented, so not only the number of visits where people were prescribed PPIs, but also the percentage of visits has gone up to about 10% um, of patients. These are adult patients that have had, um, that were on a PPI. So now the PPIs have become this new, we talked about superfoods, is it now the super drug? And, and is this what, what we should do to improve our gastrointestinal health? Well, how does it affect our children? Well, all of a sudden, we've got all these terms that have popped up in the last 15, 20 years, reflux, heartburn, um, um, esophagitis, non-esophageal reflux disease, um, post-drasal drip, um, and how everything is affected. Um, so could the pendulum be swinging towards overuse? And can it be swinging towards overuse in pediatrics? Well, things that lend to, uh, to, to overuse are when things have a uh, diagnosis that's based on history, history, reported history by parent or by patient. There's no strong gold standard to confirm or refute, and empiric therapy might be treated as acceptable. So for gastroesophageal reflux disease, these things apply, and they apply for our children. You know, we, we go on parental history, what they report about how their child is and how miserable the child is. Um, even though we have pH impedance studies, they're not very accurate. We don't have great standardized norms. And, and our gastroesophageal guidelines um, were um, kind of said, okay, you can try empiric therapy. Let's see what happens. And so um, the Department of Social Medicine um, published an article in, in social medicine basically looking at um, physician motivation for non-scientific drug prescribing because we have to take it into, um, we already have a disease that's really hard to pin down, but also we have physicians that are stressed for a time, 
And what these physicians are, are there 50% of the time when there's the survey that was done revealed that 50% of the time they were going based on parental history or on parental demand or on patient demand. And so 50% of our prescribing practice is influenced by what our patients want. And then we looked at we don't even have a strong um, stop mechanism from our pharmacists. Our pharmacists are also stressed out. Our pharmacists are unable to sometimes meet the need of saying, wait a minute, why do you want this medicine? And, and in which way are you taking this medicine? So this is an article um, that was more of a, uh, a market kind of study by, by the UK and other pharmacy markets and looked at when they were given pieces of advice that a patient should have been given, pretty clear cut. When were they given unsatisfactory advice? And you look at it, there's a variable degree from 20% to 80% um, patients asking for over-the-counter medications, patients demanding over-the-counter medications there could be a big variable degree of when the patients were given advice. So it's not to blame the pharmacies. It's one of our stop measures or one of our lines of defense is now gone. Our physicians are prescribing medications because parents are demanding it. Our pharmacists are stressed with time and are not really putting a stop to this whole process. So what does that lead to? Um, the reflux um, guidelines in 2001 basically said, yeah, children cry. They can be intermittent. However, and this was supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics um, about 15 years ago, empiric treatment with either sequential or simultaneous two-week trial of a hypoallergenic formula or acid suppression may be initiated. When you give people who are stressed for time and who are stressed by their patients that little you know, baton and say, go with it, we've had a way, a large, large increase and in overuse and in prescribing. So we um, have had a significant increase in prescribing. And um, when you look at why this happens, some studies in the Archives of Internal Medicine looked at this medicine, these PPIs, were approved by the FDA. And a lot of people had the mistaken belief if the FDA approves it, it must be extremely effective. And, and that's not always true. 25% um, had the mistaken belief that if a medicine is approved by the FDA, it does not have serious side effects or, or that all the side effects are known. So we're prescribing medications that people think have been proven to be extremely, extremely effective and that have no side effects. So how is that affecting us? Well, we started looking at proton pump inhibitor utilization patterns in infants, and we've noticed that um, the numbers are going up like crazy. Between 1999 up until 2004, the intake um, and the prevalence of PPI use has gone up about five times in our infants. And the, the reasons that the infants were taking them were varied from upper respiratory tract infections, feeding problems, gas pain or colic, bronchiolitis, maybe food allergies. And so they were really prescribed for everything. Just give a PPI because that's what filter downs from adult data down to us and say, hey, let's try it. We, we, we want to help our patients you know, achieve good gastrointestinal health. And we're also prescribing it at a younger age. So um, not only were we... Um, this is the same study. Not only were we prescribing it in large amounts, but we're also prescribing it to younger and younger populations, 50% less than the age of four months. Then we started looking at the safety of it, because that's what happens with a pendulum. Everybody says this is an awesome medication. Everybody wants to try it. And then we realized, maybe we should scale back a little bit. So when you look at the safety effects, um, 
In that previous study that I showed you um, over in the Journal of Pediatrics, they realized that you know, the, the serious adverse effects were up five times. Um, and most of these were actually lower respiratory tract infections. When you suppress the um, gastroesophageal, sorry, when you get suppressed gastric acid production, you might lead towards respiratory tract infections. You also might lead to more C. diff infections. And my old mentor, Thomas Sefera, over at Rainbow Babies and Children's, um, with, with, with his group actually showed an association between C. diff and um, gastrointestinal, I'm uh, sorry, C. diff and PPI use. And it's leading to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We're losing our gastric acid barrier and it's leading to bacterial overgrowth. And it was correlated with the duration of PPI use from two to six months all the way to, to more than 60 there's a higher incidence of, PPI, of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And finally, we're realizing the stuff that was not immediately apparent. Could acid suppression lead to future allergies? And the latest data coming out from 2008, and there was an article that came out last year, hypothesizes in murine and human models, if we don't have enough gastric pH, we might not be breaking down the protein. We might not be breaking down the, the allergen in there. And it's leading to a higher degree of IgA-mediated food allergies. And this was proven with um, diclofenac. It was proven with eggs. It was proven with ovalbumin in both mice and humans. So there was a notable rise in IgA-mediated food allergy in these trials. So, so we got to be careful what we're doing. So bland advice number five, stomach acid is there for a reason. We need to avoid PPIs unless they're really truly indicated. So you're going to see me prescribe them. I, I do sometimes. But it's when we are dealing with esophagitis, proven erosive esophagitis, endoscopy proven esophagitis. If you have short gut syndrome and you have a significant amount of gastric hypersecretion, um, I might prescribe it. But in general, outpatient care, we have to be careful that not to use this as a trial, like we do a wheat-free trial or a dairy-free trial. Well, why don't we do a PPI trial? We are, we are seeing that there are many, many more side effects and that we really did not account for 20 years ago when we were trying to treat reflux or ulcers. So what about probiotics? Well, we're realizing that we've become very sterile, which is good. We've, we've, uh, you all know about the hygiene hypothesis. And it's kind of interesting, one of those things that we've gone from avoiding unsanitary, overcrowded conditions, which will lead to infections and, and, and outbreaks of infectious diseases, to a more sterile gut that our children are being brought up in. And if we realize what our children are brought up in, they're born in homes that sometimes have filters um, for their air conditioning. They're, they're brought up in cars, which have cabin air filters as well. They, um, going out with infants, sometimes per parent family, they're, they're not going out as much. Their exposure at a young age is limited. So now all of a sudden, maybe probiotics can help. Maybe probiotics can add back the bacteria that we were not exposed to. So, so the trend uh, is for more probiotics. And so the, the long-term pendulum was that probiotics were really around for hundreds of years. They were naturally in food, fermented yogurts, kefir, everything. And then now the market is capitalizing on it and putting probiotics in our yogurt when probably what we should be doing is exposing our children. We should expose our infants. We should expose our children. We should not be so afraid about antigenic exposure at a young age. Um, and then when you look at um, most of the reviews, we found that 
initially, as people start studying, they come up with conclusions. We don't know if these conclusions should be um, applied to a population, but um, now they're working for respiratory tract infections with a slightly decreased risk ratio based on this one study from China. Um, treating it, um, maybe it can reduce crying time in breastfed infants with infantile colic. Maybe even it decreases psychiatric disorders, such as anxiety, depression, OCD, and memory. That's what we got to do. We treat all these with probiotics. That's what we do. But that's what happens in science. Evidence base is trying to find something. Everybody's trying to find it. But the problem is, is when the hype gets ahead of the actual science. And so now probiotics are good for everything. And so, so do nothing, take probiotics, you're going to be fine. But no, um, the, the public is demanding it. The public is demanding it. The market is demanding it. Remember the Google Trends that we talked about? The search is going up, and, and people are really looking at it. So I said, well, maybe this is just people are more aware of it. Maybe people are using the internet more. So I compared it to the search term football. <laughs> and I would think in the last 10, 15 years, football would be pretty stable in general, maybe more increase in football, maybe not. And to me, this kind of validated how Google Trends is actually, it's metric driven, but it's relatively accurate. Where do you guys think these peaks are? September. In September of every year, we have a peak search for football because people are getting into football season. So, so I do think that the, the trend and the market demand for probiotics is there. You're going to see a trend in your clinics with your patients demanding probiotics for everything. And so the market's already ahead of the game. They're marketing digestive advantage products for lactose defense, tummy relief probiotics, intensive bowel support. In case you, know, you don't need the moderate, you need the intensive bowel support. Um, a gas defense formula, maybe even add it with fiber. There are so many probiotics out there, it's, it's, it's crazy. And again, not evaluated by the FDA. And now, we don't just want to do probiotics, we got to cash in on this market, we got to go to hyperbiotics. These are the ones that survive these ones are the ones that go beyond just the plain capsule. They, they go, get into the intestines even further. And so while probiotics are reported to have side effects, they are generally regarded as safe. That's why the pushback hasn't been very strong. These are rare cases. But you have to have this discussion with your patients. You have to be able to give this good advice about there might be a liver abscess, there could be bacteremia, there could be fungemia, in, in pancreatitis. Actually, probiotics led to more mortality. So, so it's not just a safe medicine. It's still something that we need to discuss with our patients. And then in JPGN, the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition, they actually looked at probiotics in infants. And if you look at that column on the right, basically aside from slight decrease in diarrhea and perhaps a slight increase in stool frequency, they were not, there, was, there were no significant effects looking at multiple, multiple um, um, uh, gastrointestinal or other child-related conditions. Well, what about prebiotics? Prebiotics are those forms that you give to actually grow a nice, healthy flora in intestinal microbiome and flora. Well, also not significant. They did find more stool colonization with bifidobacteria if you give prebiotics in formula to infants, but everything else from growth, tolerance, infection, stool frequency was not significant but the market is forecasted to grow. If you look here, right where we're at, 2014, 2015, the, the formulas with probiotics are a smaller percentage than the total probiotics, but the forecast is in the next 10 years, most infant formulas will have probiotics in them. 
And this is a pendulum that's on its way to swinging. And let's have this talk again in 2030, 2040, and see if it's going to be safe and good, or are we going to find any unintended consequences? So bland advice number six, probiotic demand is here. It's not going to go away for a long time, and we should be ready. We should have these discussions with our families. They're probably safe, but we don't know long-term, and I'm talking about decades, not just years. My GI indications, when I have this discussion with family, I say, I find some use of probiotics, and these are my own things that are based on some data for ulcerative colitis. They do help. We have that data for sure. IBS, absolutely. Some people do have more than just a placebo effect. Um, C. diff and antiviral-associated diarrhea. And they also seem to help in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So I do have indications where I tell the family, here's where I might prescribe it for you. The rest of the time, I leave it open to the family, but I want to be careful that we're not all swinging one way. I want the families to swing whichever way they want to, but, but just to be careful and to get good advice from us. Well, what about future pendula? GMO crops have increased. This is one of the things that we still don't know the data on. If you look at 1995-96, before we had the genetically engineered um, crops, almost none of the crops were genetically engineered or modified. And if you look now at soybean and corn, more than 80-90% of these crops are genetically engineered. So that's a big swing. We, we've gone in 20 years with, with, with a treatment that we don't know which way it'll lead us. Now I have to say the USDA and multiple, multiple studies have shown that it's probably safe. And genetic engineering is inserting just a little bit of um, <coughs> excuse me, code that can make something herbicide tolerant, can make it nematode um, resistant, um, can make it um, virus, fungal resistance, bacterial resistance to increase crop yield. We need to help and support our farmers. We need to get better yields out there. And maybe in the developing countries, maybe a G GMO um, products sorry, genetically engineered products might lead to better crops and higher crops and, and more sustainable future. The problem is that the amount of hectares that are increasing all across the world are increasing in, in astronomical amounts, and we still don't have the data of how it will affect us. And we're realizing now, and I'm not big in agriculture or, or, or those um, agricultural markets, but the farmers are now seeing less of an effect on, on the herbicide resistance and on the Roundup-resistant weeds. So they're actually applying more and more herbicides. They're applying more and more glycophosphates. So even though these um, genetically injured products are supposed to be herbicide-resistant, Roundup-resistant, um, and, and, and fungal bacteria-resistant, they're seeing an adverse effect on their crops. So they have to use more and more herbicides to achieve the same crops. And where this is going, we don't know. but there's been a, um, a little bit of a backlash against genetic engineering, and people have been demanding genetically modified organisms. So the, the market for that is going to increase. And so there's one swing one way from 1996, where everything is um, be, being genetically engineered, to a slight backlash where the public is demanding, um, right now in small amounts, but it's increasing slowly, non-GMO products. And we still don't know where this is going to lead us. But we do know that we have to be careful, like we mentioned earlier, of our lowest income quartile, organic products and everything um, need to be cheaper and accessible if that's something we're going to recommend to our children. So finally, the bland advice number seven, and we're nearing the end of our talk, um, we need more time to determine if genetically engineered or genetically modified organisms are unsafe. Right now, we consider them safe. 
based on the USDA. But I would advise you, advise patients to avoid them if they wish. Go organic if they can afford. But remember that the cost factors that go into this. And let the market in time decide, oh yeah, and maybe some science. So we've said that perhaps we don't always need to do. Sometimes we just need to sit and, and let the body take care of itself. Um, the FDA um, is stressed and doesn't always approve the most extremely effective or the most extremely safe medications. It's, it's a, um, the public possibly doesn't always have the innate ability to choose wisely. The public does follow market hypes and eliminating um, certain components of food might lead to, to effects that we did not expect. So we have to be careful of what we're doing. We need time to see the effects of what we're doing. Um, the public is the public. They don't always make rational decisions. They make them for themselves and that the marketing and media influence is huge and early adoption in medicine might be dangerous. Um, I'd like to say that um, before I conclude that um, I want to dedicate um, part of this talk to, to Dr. Susan Edwards, who I think is retiring officially on October 1st after being here for, for, for what, three, three decades, Keith? Four, four years. Yeah. So, four. so Susan, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for your teaching and your mentoring.